0: everyone it's Caleb and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend a few minutes of your day here with me on the Learner's Corner podcast and today I am so grateful to be joined by my guest Rachel Welcher and she has recently released a brand new book called Talking Back to Purity Culture Rediscovering Faithful Christian Sexuality and I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you because um, this is one of those types of conversations that really the learner's corner was created for, you know, here in the learner's corner, we want to create a safe place to have difficult conversations. And one of the topics, one of the subjects that sometimes it seems to ha- be a really difficult time talking about um, for a number of different reasons, either because of shame or embarrassment or judgment or fear or whatever it might be, is that of sexuality. And so that's why I'm so excited to have Rachel here on the podcast to discuss this and um, But before we get into that, I do want to give a couple of quick shout outs and say thank you to Sam Massey, who has created the music for this podcast. Thanks to Garrett Oler, who has, um, who edits the podcast as well. Thank you both for just helping make the podcast better. Literally the podcast is so much better because of the two of you, because you wouldn't want to hear the music that I could create. And, uh, Garrett is so much better at editing the episodes than I am as well. I mentioned it earlier, but I want to tell you a little bit more about Rachel. Rachel is a columnist and editor at Fathom Magazine. She is also the author of two books of poetry called Blue Tarp and Two Funerals, Then Easter. Her writing has appeared in, as uh, mentioned before, Fathom Magazine, The Gospel Coalition, Mere Orthodoxy Relevant, and the Englewood Review of Books. And I'm really excited to bring this conversation to you. And the reason is, is because this is one of those types of conversations that really gets at the heart of why The Learner's Corner was started, because this is a learning podcast and we believe that we can learn from anyone, everyone, anything and everything. And we don't need to be afraid of what we learn. And so without any further wait, here is my conversation with Rachel Walsher. Well, Rachel, I'm so excited for you to be joining me on the podcast today.
1: Oh, it's so good to be here.
0: And just as we get started, you know, we're going to talk um, about your brand new book, Talking Back to Purity Culture. And I want to get into the story of that and what made you want to write it in just a minute. But before that, I think it's just important of like, whenever we talk about purity culture, can you just kind of uh, elaborate of kind of what you mean so that we can all get started on the same page? For sure. So
1: when I talk about purity culture, I'm focusing on modern purity culture, like late 1990s, early 2000s, a time marked by this drive to get teenagers to commit to abstinence. Um, Whether it was conferences, books, purity rings, uh, there was this push to get kids to commit. Um, and the motivation behind it was that if you do these things, if you commit to abstinence, you're guaranteed marriage, great sex and marriage and children.
0: yeah and then uh, obviously you know I you've had to wrestle with it yourself because you wanted to write uh, this book. Can right. you just kind of tell us um kind of the story or the series of events that led you to go, okay I like I need to create something to help you know, in your words, talk back to purity culture?
1: Right. Well, I grew up as a pastor's kid and grew up in the church. I didn't get purity culture rhetoric so much from my parents as the books I read, just the books that were popular at the time in youth group. Um, So I grew up with it, but then I went on to become a high school English teacher and I would hear my students talking about these issues. Um, But from a person, my personal life was that I tried to follow all the purity culture rules and I got married to a man I met in Bible college but 5 years into our marriage he walked away from the faith and divorced me mm. so I was left to grapple with this idea that I'd followed the quote unquote rules and now I was divorced and that was never part of the promise so from a personal perspective I was wrestling with this and then I went back to school and I got my masters from St. Andrews in divinity and I decided to study this topic for my dissertation and that's when I really dove back into the purity books of my youth. And I tried to see if those messages were actually based in scripture, based on the Bible, or if we had um, veered into some dangerous territory.
0: Mm -hmm. Take me like, uh, what was it like whenever you realized the moment that like following the rules just didn't work as well as you thought that they might work like after, like right after your divorce and everything,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: what was that like?
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, on one hand, I had, I think, the right perspective that this is something, this is suffering, it's happening to me. But then there was that nagging question in the back of my head, which was, is God punishing me because I didn't do things, you know, right enough? So am I somehow suffering the consequences of my actions? Because surely if I did all the right things, I'd still be married and I'd be in a good marriage. And so I think there was always those questions going through my head. And I knew that those weren't biblical, but they were deeply ingrained in me. And so I needed to not only um, untangle these themes for other people, but for myself first.
0: Mm-hmm. So talk to me a little bit about what you've seen have been maybe some of the, the harmful of effects. And you've you've talked to it a little bit, but go into more detail about what are some of the harmful effects that can result because of, you know, the purity culture. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, one of them is that this idea that people felt that they were somehow less worthy as people if they had made mistakes sexually or if sexual things had happened to them. So those who've been sexually abused, for example, these visual metaphors um, that were flying around at the time, a half-eaten cake or chewed-up stick of gum or a rose passed around the room, these visual metaphors communicated to adolescents that if you fail sexually you are less of a person and you have less to give your future spouse mm-hmm. and i think that those had that had a very damaging effect on people's image of themselves and a very unbiblical it created an unbiblical view that totally forgets the image of god the fact that we were made <laughs> in the image of god that that can't be changed mm-hmm. Um, And then some other damage was, just going back to what I said earlier, there was these promises made to motivate teenagers. And the promises were that if you stay abstinent, you'll get married in a timely manner. You'll have great sex from day one. You'll have children without any problems. And so these promises, which didn't come from scripture, when those things failed to come to fruition or they crumbled like they did in my life, people have been left to wonder if God just doesn't love them. Um, so that's uh, so some of the other damage. Um. And I think just overall, just this disenchantment and disappointment that people in the church feel because they thought that they were promised certain things and those things haven't come to pass. So then they become disappointed in God, even though those promises didn't come from him.
0: Mm-hmm. How How can you tell? Um, because uh, for, for those of us who have grown up, in the church we've probably been affected whether we realize it or not by mm-hmm. uh, this purity culture and everything what are what are some things uh, that people can you know or questions that people can ask themselves that can help identify hey I, I think I am being uh, influenced by my pastor mm-hmm. I'm being influenced by the ramifications or the aftermath of purity culture
1: mm, that's a really good question. I mean, I include discussion questions at the end of each chapter of my book, and that's just one um, way to kind of kick off those conversations. But I think to ask ourselves, okay, how do I view men? How do I view women? How do I view sex? How do I view marriage, singleness? And ask yourself, and even write it down. Okay, this is what I think the purpose of marriage is. And then compare it to scripture and compare it to what the world says. Maybe compare it to what you read in Christian books growing up Um, and sort of begin the process of untangling these messages and sorting through them. Um, One way that you can tell that you've been negatively impacted by purity culture is if obedience to God is a very transactional thing for you. So this idea that God owes me something because I stayed pure, right? Or because I saved my first kiss or because I was a virgin when I got married. Um, If we start, you know, digging into the core of our motivation and our motivation is what we get, right. Instead of, that we lo- we love God and we obey Him as worship for what He's already given us, right?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and even even just as uh, even as you're talking, and even as I was preparing, one of the things that I couldn't help but think about was it's just a it's just a slightly different version of the prosperity gospel. It is with it. Absolutely, absolutely. I was going to say, really? can you just expound on that more and how you see it like affected mm-hmm. through the prosperity gospel?
1: Yeah. Well, just this idea that, um, I mean, it's really work salvation, right? That it's not, we might say we believe in, um, that salvation is by faith alone through grace alone. But if our actions are that, um, we, when we do good, we should get good. Um, Mm -hmm. and here on earth, very tangibly, I think that's, um, a sign that we are falling into that prosperity gospel. The truth is Jesus was single his whole life, and he suffered greatly. But God loved him deeply, right? Um, God loved Job deeply. He was called a righteous man, and yet he suffered deeply. And so, I'm not saying that the entire Christian life is suffering, but we know from Scripture that suffering has a place in the Christian life. The prosperity gospel doesn't leave any room for that.
0: Mm-hmm. I was going to say, I think you hit on something really important. What do you think, like, makes us resist, like? resist the idea that suffering has has a place whenever it comes to the gospel?
1: Mm. Oh gosh, I think we just, we want to be comfortable, right? I mean, we don't want to suffer. And so if there's a way that we can pick a theology that matches our desire not to suffer, then we're going to lean that way. Um, and I think too, it's just, we're so eager to to be with Christ and to be in this perfection that's promised, right? and we get impatient and so it's not that it's not to say that we can't see the goodness of the lord in the land of the living we absolutely can and do Um, and i think there's so much joy in obedience but if we read scripture we see that obedience also includes suffering in fact it can include extreme persecution um, in some cases and so um, i think it's just our natural inclination to avoid pain which is very understandable but as Christians who value Scripture, we can't avoid the fact that our lives will include joy and loss.
0: Mm-hmm. And just as you're saying, I uh, I want to be careful about because I don't mean to make like a comparison between signal- singleness and. Uh, suffering, but that's where I find myself in this stage of life. I'm almost 30 and, Mm. uh, you know, single and I don't fit into people's categories right? um, because there is the, there is the, you know, the, the ideal or whatever it is that people have of like, Hey, you need to get married. And, um, there's not like a, like, I wouldn't say that for a lot of people, at least from my, I'll just say from my experience, there's not a, like a, like, uh, looking down on, but there is like a mm-hmm. hey, are you date like are you dating anybody? Things like that. Let's get the show on the road. Uh, yeah. Yep. And at least in in my thinking, it's like I like I love my life and I'm right. okay with how things are. And if that ends up happening, it does. But if not, that I'm okay with that too. What what mm. do you think um like I'm just curious, what do you think makes us like maybe not be okay with that like culturally? and everything.
1: Oh oh my goodness. I mean, that's such an important question because it brings up the way that we've idolized um, the nuclear family in the church. Right. And I think it also, just to be blunt, I think that in our culture today, we can't imagine that someone could be happy and fulfilled without sex. Right. I mean, I really think that's what it comes. And Sam Albury has written about this too, that it's just this idea that, um, that sex is a need rather than that it's a gift within a certain context. Mm. Um, and our culture has has convinced us that it's like breathing and eating, right? It's in the same category, but, but it's not. We know that it's not because we know that celibacy is a high calling. And whereas in church history, celibacy was maybe overemphasized. Now I think it's completely underemphasized, um, whether for a season or lifelong. And so single Christians, people in the church just treat them as though they're on the way to something greater, Mm -hmm. which is marriage. But scripture doesn't talk about marriage as though it's better. In fact, Paul says he thinks singleness is better. Um, but rather that where, what is it that Paul says, whatever situation you're in, you need to learn to be content, right? Because Mm -hmm. God has said, I'm with you and I will not forsake you. And so I'm butchering that verse, but you know what I'm talking about? Um, I think that as a church, we absolutely are uncomfortable with singleness. Mm-hmm. And that's not biblical. And part of it's purity culture and part of it's just secular society placing such an emphasis on romance and sex.
0: Yeah. What what do you think? Uh, and maybe uh, you know, just through your research and everything, but I'm just curious, what do you think has led to this uh overemphasis on uh like sex and that underemphasis on celibacy?
1: Hmm. You know, I'm just guessing here, but I yeah. wonder if the uh, Christian books that we read growing up were all written by happily married people, hmm. um, as opposed. So, you know, you uh, Eric and Leslie Ludy wrote a bunch of books, and um, there was Passion and Purity by Elizabeth Lee. and So, it could be that the books that we were influenced by um, in our adolescence were written from one perspective, um, which again, being happy in marriage is a beautiful thing, but yeah. it's not the only way to live to the glory of God. So, you know, rather than focusing on people like Amy Carmichael, who never got married, and she's one of my heroes of the faith, or Rich Mullins, who never got married. Um, I think that maybe our heroes coming out of purity culture were the ones who were married and had, you know, an easy time with marriage, courtship, sex, and having children. Um, that fit into the narrative of what we wanted—the the dream, the white picket fence—and it really is kind of part of the American dream too, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think we've we've chosen certain heroes of the faith, and we've neglected others that could teach us so much.
0: Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I imagine that, uh, that you've heard, or maybe some one criticism that I imagine that you've probably gotten from the book is just the question of, well, it sounds like, like, are you condoning not being pure? Are you condoning, you know, sexual sin? And I know that that's not the case. I'm just like, I would just love, uh, just to hear your response to that.
1: Right. And I think that people who just read the title of my book, they kind of have that visceral reaction, like, why would you talk back to purity culture? Um, and I've had people say to me, well, purity culture benefited me. So why are you arguing with it? Mm -hmm. What I would say to them is that um, my book differs from other critiques of purity culture right now. There are multiple books going around, um, in that I love the church and I have a, an orthodox biblical view of sexuality. So Mm -hmm. I believe in God's sexual ethic that he created from the beginning. Yeah, But even though I, agree with that, maybe not even but, but, and I want the church to be more and more like Christ. And so it's on my heart deeply to untangle lies from truth when it comes to what we teach our children and what we teach in church. So when I look back at purity culture, I see ways that we erred and, uh, lies that got mixed in with truth. And it's very important to me that we, uh, you know, divide those and figure out what's biblical and what's not moving forward. So my book is not about creating a new sexual ethic. It's about making sure that we're teaching God's sexual ethic. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, are there any other criticisms that you feel like you've received? And mm-hmm. uh, I'm just curious, how, how would you just respond to those?
1: To those who say, well, purity culture worked for me, I just say, yeah. I'm so glad. I'm like, that's mm-hmm. awesome. And I've, I've gotten a lot of that feedback. And I would say, I'm so glad it worked for you, but be aware that there are people in your life who are divorced, still single, can't have children, you know, all these different things. And that those realities may be causing them to feel neglected by God or neglected by the church. And so even if all the purity culture rhetoric worked for you, quote unquote, um, that doesn't mean that everything we said during purity culture was actually good or biblical. So uh, your your personal experience is important, but it's not the only experience out there.
0: Yeah. And another thing that I would just love uh, your perspective on is how does purity culture, um, how does it affect both men and women differently? And does it affect men and women differently?
1: For sure. So one thing I talk about in my book, I have a chapter dedicated to what women were taught and a chapter dedicated to what men were taught. And women were given advice that mainly centered around this idea that they were morally superior to men and therefore in charge of making sure not only that they stayed pure, but that the men around them stayed pure. So there was this like additional pressure, and again, unbiblical because the Bible says that we're we're accountable to God for our own sins, right? But in purity culture rhetoric, suddenly young women were feeling as though if they, you know, accidentally bent over and showed some cleavage that they had caused someone to sin. Um Whereas men were taught that they were supposed to have sexual self-control, but one of the ways they were taught to do this is by just viewing women as just obstacles to purity. So instead of viewing them as sisters and as someone with dignity, co-heirs of the kingdom, um, that wasn't the foundation. The foundation was they're they're tempstresses or they could cause you to stumble. So you need to look away, you need to ignore. And what that did was um, maybe that helped men temporarily fight lust. But then what do you do when you're in the church? How do you have sisters and brothers come together and mm. learn from each other and be in relationship? We have to find a way to love one another without it being sexual. And what's really hard is that purity culture sort of made it seem like everything is sexual and that it's impossible for men and women to have fellowship. So I think that it, it made women feel um, an extra layer of unbiblical guilt and it made men feel like they were constantly on the verge of sexual sin. Almost that they were like animals, which is not true and not biblical and very dishonoring to the dignity of men. And when you combine these two things, then men and women don't know how to be in fellowship.
0: Mm-hmm. And then uh, probably the thing that uh, was the biggest eye-opener for me, just as I was reading through your book, and you you referenced earlier, but just um, how dishonoring purity culture can be to particularly people who have been abused, because that's just not something that I had thought of whenever it comes to it. Can you just elaborate on, on how, on how it is dishonoring and how um, people who have been, and you referenced it a little bit. I would just love for you to expound on it. How people who have been sexually abused, you know, interpret that message.
1: Well, that question is actually what started all my research. So my Mm -hmm. dissertation was specifically I wanted to know what the books of my youth would have said to those who'd been sexually abused. So like, how did they hear those messages of virginity is the best gift you can give your spouse or, you know, you're like a used car if you've had a sexual experience. So I wanted to, to kind of read those books through the lens of someone who'd been sexually abused. And what I found was that they would walk away with a feeling of worthlessness um, feeling like used goods, damaged goods, and that there's really, they were occasionally, the sexually abused were occasionally addressed in these books, but it was very small. And there was always this indication that you're kind of in, I don't know, you're sort of in the same group as everyone else um, mm-hmm. because you've had sexual experiences. So even though you didn't choose to have them, your future spouse is going to be disappointed because it's not all new for, you know? Um, And so I think that just this idea, they'd say you could um, have like a renewed or second virginity. But as Christians, we shouldn't need to have a second or renewed virginity because our purity comes from Christ. Mm -hmm. Yes, what we do matters, but it doesn't change our value or dignity because our purity cannot change if it comes from Christ. And so that was not emphasized. I think those who were sexually abused, it was like pressing in on a wound That's what purity culture did.
0: Um, Mm -hmm. Are there any other misconceptions or maybe myths that have been created uh, about or from purity culture about sex or sexuality?
1: Well, one, I was just talking to a woman about this one, um, but there was this sort of light switch analogy Um, in purity culture, this idea that you can go from being almost ashamed of your sexuality because you're trying to constantly suppress mm-hmm. it. Um, and then when you get married on your honeymoon night, suddenly you flip the switch on and you're just sexually confident. And you know they'd always say, you're gonna have mind blowing sex on your honeymoon. I think that misconception set a lot of people up to feel disappointed in themselves or even maybe in their spouse because they thought that sex would just be this immediately easy transition. Whereas for Christians who've been practicing purity, especially virgins, it's a learning process and there's nothing wrong with that. It's beautiful and good. But there was a whole generation who was set up to be disappointed with married sex, not because married sex isn't wonderful, but because they were told that it would be effortless, right? And they were told things about men and women that weren't necessarily true. So some of the other um, misconceptions are that men are just these sex machines who are constantly wanting sex. Um, so there are a lot of Christian women who are like, wait a second, I thought my husband would always want me. Um, am I doing something wrong? And the answer is no, your husband's just a human being. Um, and then this idea that women don't like sex. So the, the sexuality of females was downplayed. So then women who had sexual desire felt ashamed of it. And so both these things, I think, have just made marriage harder for Christians.
0: hmm so I kind of want to shift uh the conversation a little bit. And we've talked a lot about what, what has contributed to purity culture and kind of what it is. I want to kind of shift towards, okay, so what what's the alternative? What what can we do to help promote um mm. and and almost in a sense, you know, renew our minds to right. a healthy version of sexuality? What can that look like and how can we go about doing that?
1: Right. That's such a good question. So I try to cover a lot in my book and I just, I end with trying to kick off a conversation about where to go next. And it's just the beginning. I mean, what I point out is that I don't want to end the conversation. I just want to begin it. And so not to self-promote, but I included discussion questions in the book specifically so that it would give people a place to start because it's hard to talk about sexuality in mixed company with a diverse group of people. And yet, That's my answer to your question is that we need to start having these conversations, um, not just with teenagers in a cluster or women in a cluster, but my dream would be that the widow, the same-sex attracted teen, the divorcee, the married couple, the singles would get together in a small group and have these conversations and see that sexuality is not something that we need to keep in the dark. It's common to mankind, right? We all we were born with it. It's a God-created good. It manifests itself so differently in each of us. But there are shared um, struggles and joys. And so I think like this idea that married couples and singles have nothing to talk about when it comes to this is not true. Married couples need to know what it's like for singles, how to pray for them, how to love them, how to utilize their gifts, and vice versa. And um, so I think that we have to start by being willing to open these conversations up to a more diverse audience rather than feeling like we have to stay in our little clusters of sameness.
0: Yeah. Talk, talk to me about the power that you see, um, in having those, you know, uh, diversity and lifestyle, uh, conversations because, you know, mm. the person listening is proud, like probably a lot of people would naturally think, you know what, I'm, I'm just going to have that conversation with my spouse or with my partner or right. whoever it might be. Or, um, I might talk about it with other women. I might talk about it with yeah. other men, but that's right. it. I'm not going any further beyond that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think that's probably going to be the main response is, okay, I'll find a few safe people to talk to about this. And I would say, start there. Mm-hmm. There's no pressure, but I set the book up so that it, it's not a sexy um, Bible study. It, yeah. The questions are not meant to titillate. They're very serious. And um, I think reverent. And so You might be scared, but when you look at the question, just it's questions like, what were you taught to believe about masculinity and how have your views changed and why, you you know, things like that. And one way, just real practical advice. And this relates Mm -hmm. to talking to teenagers too, start the conversation based on a pop culture artifact, a movie, a TV show, a book, a song and say, okay, what is this book saying about sexuality or men and women or marriage? We talk about it like it's a you know high school English class, right? Yeah. And then dive into well, what do you? How much of that do you agree with, and what do you disagree with, and why? And I think that kind of creates almost a neutral, somewhat removed conversation where you don't feel as awkward because you're not talking about your own sexuality, but you can start by saying, "Okay, this singing artist depicts relationships this way. Let's talk about that."
0: Mm-hmm. One of one of the quotes that you have in the book. Um, I would love, uh, just, to uh, have you elaborate on it just because it's so powerful and I'll, I'll, I'll read it. And then, um, I would just love your thoughts on it. And you say that Deborah Hirsch points out that our sexuality is more than just who we're attracted to more than our sexual organs or the act of sex itself. She says sexuality can be described as the deep desire and longing that drives us beyond ourselves in an Mm. attempt to connect with, to understand that which is other than ourselves. Essentially, it is a longing to know and to be known by other people on physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual levels. It thus forms a part of what it means to love others as ourselves.
1: Mm. She's so good. (laughs) Deborah Hirsch will blow your
0: mind. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, do you have, just have any uh, other thoughts as it pertains to that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that when we think about the Imago Dei, the fact that we are made in the image of God, then that means that our sexuality has to, in some way, mirror God's goodness, right? Mm-hmm. And so, yes, it can mirror God's goodness within sex and marriage, but what Deborah Hurst says is that our, um, that sexuality is a desire for intimacy. And intimacy can be sexual, but intimacy can also involve friendship. It can involve community. You know, talking about this diverse small group, that's a form of intimacy. Sharing with others, having a cup of coffee and being near, worshiping together, praying together. I think we need to expand our definition a bit, realizing that there's not only one way to be close to someone. And married people don't have the market cornered on intimacy. We experience a certain kind of intimacy that's exclusive to marriage, but singles have so many opportunities for closeness and intimacy and to be known and to know others. And if we neglect to talk about that, then we're leaving people to feel very lonely, including married, married people who maybe aren't in happy marriages. Um, you know, Friendship and the, the body of Christ is God's gift to, to each of us
0: hmm I have one last question that I want to yeah. ask you, but before uh, that, I just want to <laughs> ask, is there anything in the book that we haven't talked about that you would want to talk about?
1: Oh, goodness. There probably is because I try to cover so much, but <laughs> off the top of my head, I can't think of it. You've, you've covered a lot.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, one, one final question that I want to ask is, um, what's at stake if we don't change our ways whenever it comes to purity culture and, and following this new path or approach Mm -hmm. to sexuality.
1: I think we risk create, and I say this in the book, but we risk creating chaste Pharisees instead of imperfect disciples. Mm. So we obviously should want our children to pursue sexual purity, just like we should be pursuing sexual purity. But Our motivation needs to be true purity out of a love for God, not the appearance of purity in
0: order to earn good things. Yeah. Well, even uh, I know that I said that was the last question, but one thing that you were saying that made me think of was um, just the way that uh, in some instances we set up sex or sexuality as an idol as well. Do you have any other thoughts on that?
1: Well, sex as an idol is not good for marriage. It's not good for singles. It's not good for anyone. Um, I've talked to some of my same sex attracted friends in the church who pursue celibacy. And this idea that sex is like the ultimate thing that you can attain to is very discouraging to them as they pursue celibacy. And so I think, and then when you make sex an idol in marriage, then sex becomes a selfish thing that spouses are seeking rather than um, something to create unity and to communicate love. So Sex as an idol doesn't benefit anyone and it replaces God. It takes him off his throne. Yeah.
0: Well, Rachel, I know that people are going to want to continue to learn from you and follow you and pick up the book. Where's the best place for people to go to do those things?
1: You can follow me on Twitter at Rachel J. Welcher and the book is sold anywhere books are sold.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you. This was great.
0: Well, if you enjoyed my conversation with Rachel, the best way to make sure that you don't miss any future episodes is by subscribing to the whatever podcast or subscribing to the Learner's Corner on whatever podcast player you choose to use, whether that be Spotify, Google, Google Play, or um Apple podcast, whatever you're listening to, or if you have another one that you happen to listen to and love, just go ahead and hit the subscribe button. Also leave a rating and write a review of the podcast or share it on social media. Would love to hear from you. Some of the, your takeaways from it as well. And also a couple quick shout outs that I want to give is to Garrett Oler and Sam Massey. Thanks again for making the podcast. There's something on this podcast stood out to you the listener would love to hear from me, or if you have something that you would love us to cover or talk about on the podcast would love to hear from you as well and you can go ahead and reach me at my instagram handle at caleb j mason would love to hear from you anyway that's all that i got from you today or for you today until next time keep learning and keep growing